And it is a pleasure to welcome our first guest to the program today. She is Dr. Renee El Gabalawe. She is a, an assistant professor and clinical psychologist at the University of Manitoba and co-author of a piece called entitled COVID-19's Parallel Pandemic, Why We Need a Mental Health Vaccine. Dr. El Gabalawe, Renee, good morning. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, and, and happy Easter Sunday. Well, thank you very much, and the same to you. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you with us. And, you know, this this whole business of, uh, you put the word vaccine in parenthesis, or, or in quotations, I should point out, why we need a mental health vaccine. And, of course, we're just at the point of desperately trying to roll out the uh, the physical health vaccine uh, in, in greater and varying degrees of success coast to coast. But, Doc, why do we need a mental health vaccine minus the actual shot. What are you talking about here? So really, I wrote the piece to to garner sort of recognition that the, the COVID-19 pandemic has had um, significant mental health effects mm-hmm. on, on all walks of life. And it's, you know, it's, it's critical that, that as we're you know, getting the physical effects of the, the disease under control, that we do start talking about mental health and we do start talking about effective interventions that can be used to mitigate some of those mental health effects. Is it uh, is it also reasonable to when you say when well, we need to to talk uh, start rather talking more about mental health? I couldn't agree more. Uh, is there any one particular group within the population that needs more attention than other, mm-hmm. or because we've all been basically living under the same? Let's be kind and call it limitations for the past 13 months. Are we all pretty much in the same boat? Not necessarily. So we, we have identified in, in research um, and from previous uh, similar, um, you know, pandemics or uh, stressful situations that there are particularly um, high at-risk groups. And so one of those groups that I highlight in my conversation piece are younger adults. Mm-hmm. And so we know that the younger people tend to be disproportionately affected mental health-wise by these types of situations than, than older adults. Um, but there are also other at-risk groups. So, for example, frontline workers, uh, people who are particularly isolated during, during the uh, physical distancing mandate, mm-hmm. um, people who actually got COVID, people who lost people from COVID, and uh, there are also pre-existing vulnerabilities. So people like who had, um, you know, a pre-existing sure. mental health disorder. Yeah. Well, D- Dr. El Gabalawe, uh, I suppose we, uh, in terms of groups that we would be paying most attention to on a professional level would be those frontline workers, that group that you identified in that list of people most mm-hmm. at risk. In terms of being responsive to at-risk groups, the system seems to be best uh, dealing uh, currently with frontline workers who, of course, need all the help and support they can get. Uh, Would you agree that uh, there's at least some attention being directed to their welfare? I agree entirely. Um, I always think that there can be, you know, more done. I I think that we should be really focusing efforts on these vulnerable groups and integrating uh, interventions or ways to promote resilience into the workplace. I think that's critical uh, in situations like this because oftentimes frontline workers are stretched really thin. Sure. They're working long hours. And so a really uh, good way about going about that is really that integration. 
And is there a group that if they're being, uh, and I, I don't want to say best looked after, but they're certainly their, their uh, concerns are being addressed. Is there a group that at the other end of that spectrum is least uh, being dealt with uh, as, as a group? know um you know what group needs the most attention at this mm. point because there are a number of different at-risk groups um, but i would say a large um a, a large group is younger individuals and i think younger individuals who um have uh, gotten a little bit of a bad reputation in a sense during this pandemic um, because there has been uh news uh, come out about them being super spreaders right. and, you know, going out in the environment and spreading COVID-19. Um, and so that that in itself may have clouded um, people talking about mental health as much, you know, in terms of the, the, the risk during the pandemic. Well, a lot of people, of course, just get their backs up. I mean, we've had uh, the premier of the British Columbia, for crying out loud, take a bit of flack recently because he got uh, he got angry. Uh, and, and in the wake of some of these events in which young people were uh, partying and carrying on in large numbers in close proximity, no masks, lots of music and lots of booze, the usual stuff. And uh, he got mm-hmm. a little bent out of shape and, and, and zeroed in on this particular demographic and, and warned them, finger wagging, don't blow it for the rest of us uh, and you know mm. that was taken as it, it did not land well as you might imagine uh, but nonetheless yeah. it, it is reflective uh, nonetheless of of the attitudes of some older people with respect to younger people who don't have the tolerance for um for uh, what younger people do by way of resisting they did they just say uh, a, a lot of older people will look at them and say oh, for crying out just grow up you think we're not going through hard times too you know suck it up mm-hmm. princess and, and that's mm-hmm. that's the you know what i mean it, it we're, what we're looking for is a level playing field in which everyone responds to the crisis the same way and that's never going to be found is it mm-hmm. i think it's a huge challenge and you know the the reality of the situation is we really do need to be you know following these 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 mandates that are laid out by various you know provinces and that are being rolled out by various provinces but at the same time we also need to be supporting the mental health aspect as well and so those, those can be two different things and and it's 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 a challenge you did a study uh, in the, and it was published in the Canadian Journal of Psychiatry, and you talked to fifty thousand Canadians uh, to, and looking at anxiety symptoms. Tell us what—that's a huge study group. Tell us what you found. Um, well, I wish I talked to fifty thousand people. <laughs> Group of people to talk to, but um, it was actually data we used that was uh, from Statistics Canada, so a very large um, data set that, that's collected on the national level. Okay. It's nationally representative, and they go out and they, they survey um, um, a number of different Canadians from different demographics, and we, we utilized that data and analyzed it to understand what were some of the early mental health and um, coping responses of Canadians. And so what we found there is that, um, you know, as we've discussed, that younger people are disproportionately affected, where 36% of of younger adults had um, clinically significant levels of anxiety, followed by 27.1% of people aged 35 to 54, and about uh, 14.5% of those 55 and older. So you can really see that trend of um, the, the, the younger adults are at much higher risk 
percent older adults. Interesting. But does that change when you get to seriously older people? Because, of course, then you're dealing with people, many of whom, Renee, are in isolation and dealing with extreme loneliness. And that uh, presents a whole other set of anxiety realities, doesn't Mm -hmm. it? Absolutely. And I think at that older age group, um, there's often physical vulnerabilities and, and they're at very high risk of poor outcomes if they acquire the disease. And so you're right that it's not a complete linear trend. It's not um, really clear cut like that. Uh, there, there are a number of factors that can um, come into play in that relationship and can elevate anxiety for particular people. And I think isolation is one of them. No question. Many, you know, many people across the age spectrum, um, but there are particular groups such as, you know, the oldest old that, that may um, have, um, you know, pretty significant isolation Indeed. because of being unable to see friends and family. And Renee El Gabalawe is our guest. Dr. El Gabalawe is a, a psychiatrist and professor of psychology, psychology rather, at the University of Manitoba and is co-author of a piece that Andrew and I spotted a few days ago at theconversation.com entitled COVID-19's Parallel Pandemic, Why We Need a Mental Health Vaccine. And Dr. El Gabalawe has talked to us about the group that, uh, from their research, appears to be most impacted by the the pandemic, that being younger Canadians. You've uh, had a lot of data to analyze, and these are your findings. So let's talk, Renee, if we can, about that vaccine, which in the uh, title of the and the headline of your piece is, is put in quotes, why we need a mental health vaccine, and it's not going to ever be a shot. But what do you mean by a vaccine? And so I, I use the term vaccine as, as somewhat of a metaphor yeah. in terms of representing that you know, we truly need to be talking about interventions. And when we look at mental health interventions, the reality of the situation is there is a national shortage of mental health professionals. Mm -hmm. And I think across the board, um, there are very long wait times uh, to to be able to access a mental health professional. And so we need to start thinking about different solutions and what that might look like if we really want to target you know, a large number of Canadians. And I mean, let me just interrupt. Can I interrupt just for just on the point of view of of the point that you make? Because I think it's it's an important point, Renee. And I think we need to to just take a second and and emphasize how difficult it can be for some individuals to see someone who can help them. You can't just Mm -hmm. call up a a psychiatrist or a psychologist and make an appointment. Typically, you Mm -hmm. have to have a referral from your family doctor. And if you don't have a family doctor, that makes the complica- complicates the process even more. It is very difficult in some cities, particularly, for a person to see someone who can help with a mental health issue. Absolutely, I agree. And there is, you know, a fairly complex referral process. Mm-hmm. Um, there are fee-for-service uh, mental health professionals that work in the community, um, but but many people don't have insurance coverage that, that they're able to access that readily and, and they're able to afford essentially, you know, receiving those services. Right. And in many cases, people don't even know where to start. Who do you call? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, you know, uh, when we think about a national strategy, we really need that coordination as well and, and really to come together to, to clarify that for people and to help people navigate the system. Um, so, so that it is a seamless process. 
Does it surprise you that, and I, I understand that the focus of, of the government in terms of managing this situation has been multi-pronged, given that there are economic realities to deal with along with medical, uh, but does it surprise you that so far, at least in this process, which is now well over a year, that there has been so little attention being paid to including mental health issues uh, as part of the solution package? Mm-hmm. I think yes and no. I, I think that because of the novelty of the pandemic, you know, my sense is that the government was scrambling to you know, get the virus under control, mm-hmm. you know, promote the development of vaccines, really be able to um, make sure people are safe and, and creating these mandates to keep them as safe as possible. Um, they did uh, roll out some mental health initiatives, including Wellness Together, which is an online platform. Um, but I, I certainly think that there can be more done moving forward. Right. Now, you talk about in terms of vaccine, we're never going to have that shot. But you, you do talk about, for example, you say the initial dosage could be digital. What do you mean by that? And so there's been a number of online cognitive behavioral therapy programs developed. So cognitive behavioral therapy is a a specific type of therapy that has been shown to be especially effective for anxiety and depression and and a number of other uh, mental health difficulties. And, um, and there have been, as mentioned, a number of programs developed in really well-researched and empirically you know, validated programs okay. that people can access. And one of the things, uh, or potentially misconceptions about mental health treatment, is people think, oh, psychologists, psychiatrists talk therapy. They think that you know, they'll just go and, and talk to someone, when in fact, cognitive behavioral therapy is a very active approach, and we're essentially giving someone tools to be able to use throughout their life to enhance their, their well-being and their mental health. And so, um, w- which can be done in, in a fairly good way online, okay. creating um, an opportunity for people to get those same tools um, to be able to support their mental health. Interesting. So, uh, again, if someone listening to us is uh, knows someone or is experiencing some of these difficulties with anxiety and depression and so on, and now that they're learning on the radio from the nice doctor in Winnipeg that there's a place they can go online to maybe get some help, where would you send them, Renee? What? Give us a website. Give us an address. Yeah. So there are, as mentioned, a number of national initiatives. One of the, the struggles with these national initiatives, so like Wellness Together, so Wellness Together Canada, if you put that into Google, okay. it would come up. Another one is Ability CBT. I believe that's only free for Ontario and Manitoba at this point, Okay, um, but it can be accessed at a small fee. Um, and, and so those are two specific programs that are pandemic-related. Unfortunately, we don't know a lot in terms of the efficacy of them. So mm-hmm. in terms of there hasn't been a lot of research because they will be things out quite quickly sure. in order to meet this early demand. Um, so um, it's challenging as a mental health professional to fully recommend it when there isn't the evidence behind it, but I think it's a great start. Sure. And, you know, um, having had a number of patients uh, engage in the program, I've heard very good things. Um, but there are, you know, well-established programs that, that have a lot of support. And one of those I mentioned in the article is This Way Up. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a um, it's an initiative through Australia, um, and they have a number of different programs that have 
been really well researched and and really empirically validated for anxiety, depression, and other uh, mental health difficulties. So wellness together would be a good one to, to Google as a, a, along with mm-hmm. this way up, uh, just as places to go to have a look around to see what what options might be available to you, and and maybe a, a light will come on. Uh, Renee, thanks very much for this this morning. We appreciate your time on Easter Sunday. No, that's very generous of you, and we also appreciate the work you've done. And I would commend this article. COVID-19's Parallel Pandemic, Why We Need a Mental Health Vaccine. Uh, to our listeners, it's available right now at theconversation.com. Dr. El Gabalawi, Renee, thanks so much for this. And happy thank Easter again. Thank you so much for having Yeah, thank you so much for having me and happy Easter to all of you. And here we are, uh, uh, well over a year into the pandemic and many of us still waiting our turn for our vaccine as the, the government of Canada and our provinces attempt to get us uh, our shots. The target date still July 1st for most Canadians, although the Prime Minister has set Labor Day as the realistic goal for all who want to be vaccinated to be so by then. I think realistically here in British Columbia, most of us should have had at least an opportunity to have our first shot by Canada Day. I'm certainly hoping to. There, uh, of course, in various uh, parts of the country, it's it's all about logistics and coordination and getting the right people in the right places to get these crowds through and get this done quickly. And how about a public-private partnership to get some of this job done. In the region of Peel in Ontario, uh, the Canadian technology platform BookJane is helping the region vaccinate, well, 1.4 million people. That's 10% of the population of Ontario. Here to talk about how his private organization is partnering with the very public health uh, associations is the CEO of BookJane. A pleasure to welcome Curtis Kahn to the program. Mr. Kahn, good morning, happy Easter, and welcome. Good morning. Happy Easter to you, too. Thanks very much, Curtis. Tell tell us a little bit about BookJane. How long has the company been around, and and what do you do? So we've been around since uh, 2016, and our platform is pretty much built for long-term care. So we've been working with uh, retirement homes and long-term care across Canada, uh, really helping mobilize their staff. So, you know, there's a huge labor shortage uh, in Canada global, and even globally on uh, healthcare workers. So our platform really helps to, to, to manage and mobilize that workforce uh, efficiently, trying to increase uh, retention and have less utilization from third-party uh, agencies going into a facility. Mm-hmm. Well, you say on your website, which is bookchain.com, if you're interested in following along, friends, you say over 4 million caregivers will be needed across North America by 2030. There is a crisis, and you're actively trying to solve it. How do you propose to to uh, be an ongoing part of the solution to the caregiver shortage? So our solution is, is really partnering with the uh, long-term care homes and retirement homes and trying to leverage those, uh, you know, shifts or hours coming through, uh, you know, for the facilities, utilizing their part-time and casual a lot more efficiently than, you know, managing third-party uh, agencies and having the ability to share that workforce with other healthcare facilities. That's going to be one of the key key uh, things that we would like to work on. And we see this as a huge <clears throat> disruptor in the industry, but also 
really creating that retention within the uh, the workforce. And that's certainly been a problem, particularly in long care homes. Curtis, I'm curious because you've been around since 2016, since long before the pandemic came along. And so at that point, you were interested in busy uh, staffing up these long-term care facilities and so on. When the pandemic arrived... Uh, did did you was one of the first problems you encountered uh, the reality of workers working in multiple facilities that had to be uh, that that had to be eliminated? In other words, you could only work at one facility at a time. Did you at that point have workers in multiple facilities? So we we had to make changes uh, immediately. Sure. on our on our platform and in the workforce. So uh, we had to ensure that everyone signed. Uh, you know, an affidavit making sure that they took their COVID test only to work in that an actual facility. Right. So they were not allowed to be able to work in multiple facilities, only only that one site uh, location, mm-hmm. which provides a challenge as well because you're starting to reduce the workforce as well. But we, you know, we had to make changes to to our system, but also ensuring that every single person cannot cross-pollinate in other facilities. Exactly. So that, and that was a huge problem. And of course, as you point out, Curtis, well, quite accurately, it became a staffing problem because if you were having staffing problems before all of this came along and then your staff was only allowed to work in one facility instead of multiple, then you had a real staff problem, didn't you? Exactly. Exactly. And it's a challenge. And then you're starting to, to everyone's starting to fight for, for those resources. So it becomes an issue. And then cost becomes an issue because it becomes a bidding war. So that, so that it, it goes into multiple challenges. And so that's one of the things that we faced. So when you uh, staff out or, or, or go to these care homes and offer your services as a staffing agency, uh, how, do you, how, do you, uh, how do you do it? How does Book Jane do it? Does the uh, care facility contract to you, Curtis, uh, and then you staff it? Or uh, I'm curious about the arrangement, how that goes. Yeah, so there's two parts of a business. So if a facility wants uh, staff, from us, we create a, a dedicated uh, pool of resources for that facility. Okay. So the facility now has access to those resources. The resources are fully vetted, ensuring that they have all documentations that's required to work in that facility. Mm-hmm. But the facility has direct access to those workforce, and they will actually contract us, and we will actually work pay the, directly the uh, the workforce. Ah, okay. The facility also have the ability to use our technology to manage their staff as well. Oh, I see. Okay, so the, you 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 can you can approach them uh, on on a couple of different levels. How's how's the staffing now? Uh, now that we've had uh, the the problem identified in long term care homes, and I can remember the army going into some facilities in Ontario, Curtis, a year or so ago, and just being appalled by some of the conditions. Uh, I would imagine that a lot of pressure has been brought to bear on not on just on the Ford government, but on provincial governments across the country to ensure that long term care facilities facilities are staffed up uh, to a point that uh, we'll never see um, prior to the pandemic. In other words, the pandemic has caused long-term care to turn a corner in Canada. Is that a safe prediction? Yeah, I, I would say that's a safe prediction. I think I think there's, there's going to be a lot of changes. I think there's going to be a lot of changes in the industry, uh, more compliance. You're starting to see more compliance. Uh, and one of the big parts of the challenge will continue for long-term care. It, it is going to be a resource issue as well, because if you don't have the, the right resource or enough resources, it's very difficult to look after someone in that facility. Mm-hmm. 
So this is one of the things utilizing our technology is really trying to ensure that you can attract people from, from different markets to come back into to healthcare and also really leveraging that workforce more efficiently because I think one of the biggest challenges facing the industry is going to be proper training, ensuring that they can compete with the Amazons and Googles of the world sure. because they're, they're, people are moving, healthcare workers are moving to those different industries. Curtis Kahn is on the line from Toronto. Mr. Kahn is the CEO of a company called BookJane, and uh, they represent thousands of Canadian healthcare professionals who are in control of when and where they want to work. And you represent, Curtis, registered nurses, registered licensed practical nurses, personal support workers, and healthcare aides. Uh, on the website, you post uh, positions and approximate pay, pay grades. How, how, in terms of recruitment and people coming to the site looking for the kind of uh, flexibility uh, as healthcare professionals that you offer H- how's it going for you it's good it's great i mean we get we get a lot of uh applicants we we service a, you know, a number of different facilities in, in the country uh we'll probably receive probably roughly a couple thousand applicants on, on a weekly basis mm. uh we, we got a lot of traffic on our website today. What? Uh, how do you deal with union shops if you're representing a, a, a professional who in a, in a situation where there's a unionized environment? Does that uh, represent a conflict of any kind to you? So, so if a facility is using our technology for their existing employees or their staff, uh, we follow the union rules and uh, union guidelines. So okay. our platform does uh, call-outs, bargaining agreements. It follows... Uh, 110% of union uh, rules. Curtis, how did the region of Peel come to connect with you to help uh, uh, expedite the vaccination of 1.4 million Ontarians? So when wave one hit in Ontario for COVID, we partnered with the Ontario Medical Association. Uh, We were able to onboard about 2,000 physicians in about 48 hours in case the province needed to create pop-up hospitals. So this way we had physicians on flight. So we continue working with the Ontario Medical Association. And when the public health had the uh, accountability to start rolling out the vaccination, our relationship with UMA and public health um, was a a core partnership to say that we can actually help them. So with uh, working with Peel, we were able to uh, manage and all their 300 plus physicians to our platform and giving them the ability to uh, deploy those resources efficiently with multiple public health regions in Peel, where we saw a 99% fulfillment rate where those physicians actually showed up for those appointments. Right. So, again, these physicians that are part of your network, they're all on the app. And so they deal with you and make these appointments and arrangements digitally, too, don't they? Uh, correct. The, the, the regions actually digitally make these, the schedules directly to the physicians. So if that job goes out to first come, first serve on the physicians, so that's why we see high uh, fulfillment rates because it's going out in sequence and it's going out to a large pool to pick those ships up quickly. Interesting. So how's the vaccine rollout going in Peel with the assistance of your company, BookChain, Curtis? So Peel is ahead by 10% today. So we're ahead of, uh, similar to, to British Columbia, they're, they're ahead we're, we're on target to early uh, June or mid-June to, to be able to vaccinate uh, about 75% of that population. 
So and now are is Ontario going through the the scheduling of uh, appointments and so on in the age cohort approach that we are in BC the same and where if so where are you uh, this weekend? So in Ontario, a little bit different in BC. So Ontario, um, we we're still in the age bracket on age, uh, not as same as BC where you've got um, you know cashiers, clerks, everyone that's uh, customer-facing getting vaccinated. So we still have some challenges here in Ontario. Right. We're at 73 this weekend. Anyone uh, 73 or older can uh, make arrangements to uh, have an appointment for a vaccine. And my understanding was that some parts of Canada were a little, uh, in terms of age groups, I have relatives in Ontario in their 60s, for example, who have already been vaccinated. So again, it's just, and it's an issue of supply over which uh, an outfit like yours has no control whatsoever, right? Correct, correct. And, and each, each region in Ontario has a different age group. Right now it's 65 in some areas, and in some areas it's 50 now. Yeah. And so, again, that's just a function of supply. And uh, But I'm, I'm looking beyond all of this, and especially, again, back to long-term care, Curtis, because this is an area that a lot of Canadians have really uh, just learned about in the last year in, in perhaps a terribly negative way. But nonetheless, it's been an area of, of uh, our society that a lot of us have just been quite comfortable with the notion that we can sort of park our seniors in, in good care facilities and forget about them. And uh, as it turns out, maybe not all of those facilities were the kind of uh, operating at a quality level that we thought they were. And that's certainly been proven. So the lesson that we've been learning over the past year is that we don't take as good care of our seniors as we think we do. And part of that, uh, Curtis, and this is where you come in, and I'm curious about recruitment. How are you going to staff out these facilities, especially given the fact that they're going to need more staff and attention? perhaps than ever before. So that's, that's our, it comes back to our partnership, working directly with the uh, facilities, working with the associations to, to sit together, because this is not a location by itself, uh, figuring out their, their staffing issues. It's, it's everyone coming together to figure out how to solve this issue. This is, this is a major problem. You bet. I cannot solve this on my own. We, right. we need to come together to understand what's required to solve uh, this this major issue that's we're, we're going to see, uh, and we're seeing it now. And so, uh, are there? But are there already? Uh, is there some recognition of the fact that this is is going to be needed? There's going to be a combination of of resources required and and a, a significant amount of energy applied to making this right. Correct. Correct. And, and that's one of the things that we've started having conversations, uh, offering our platform to start with, with these facilities, offering it just to start, offering it for free. Like we're, we're providing our services today for some of the long-term care homes if they want to try our platform just to show that it is going to help with, with recruitment, it is going to help with retention, it's mm-hmm. going to ensure that the employees are more empowered to, to feel that they can pick up those jobs when they want to. Um, so we're currently offering our technology to facilities today. And that's, of course, and you've mentioned this many times, and I'm repeating it again for the benefit of those here in BC listening to you. This is a, a company that operates right across Canada. Do you have activities going on here in BC, Curtis? Uh, we're starting to. We're currently starting to. We have some clients in BC today uh, that's currently using our technology in BC and currently looking at rolling it out in BC as well. Interesting stuff. Uh, 
Yeah, we've also partnered with the uh, British Columbia uh, Care Association as well. Well, it's good to know, and and uh, I think that uh, going forward, this is a, a company and a, an approach that a lot of Canadians are going to find to be particularly useful and practical. Curtis Kahn, thanks so much for this. We appreciate your joining us. Let me just commend BookJane.com, your website, to our listeners to learn about a new Canadian company that's kind of on the front edge of, of organizing the uh, healthcare delivery uh, professionals in, in a much more empowering to them, and therefore for a better-for-us, ultimately, way. Curtis Kahn, thanks for this, and uh, we appreciate your time on Easter Sunday. Thank you. Thank you again. So yesterday I had to gas up the beast, and I paid a buck forty-nine-nine. I was not happy about it. Our next guest says it's not likely these prices are going down anytime soon either. Patrick DeHaan is the head of uh, Petroleum Analysis with Gas Buddy. He's on the road this weekend. We've tracked him down in Iowa. Patrick, good morning, and welcome back. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Here's a headline from two weeks ago that Andrew and I saw on uh, one of the websites that said, you know, we got to get Patrick back. Here's the headline. Gas prices are up sharply and could keep rising, says analyst. Well, that would be you. It's two weeks old. And my gosh, Patrick, that headline could have been written last night. There's no end in sight for gas prices going up, is there? There really isn't. It's been a fast and furious, really four months to start the year. Gas prices now in uncomfortable territory after, of course, a year ago being under a dollar per liter. Mm -hmm. So certainly we've come a long way. The pandemic has improved, and that's really the key behind why we are spending more at the pump. Of course, too, Canada's carbon tax continues to go up and costs motorists more and more. How about the pandemic in terms of affecting demand, Patrick? Because it's been now a measurable year. And uh, here in British Columbia, we're getting some rebates from our insurance company because of the uh, because of the diminished demand and diminished claims and all the rest of it. So we're able to enjoy a little bit of a return on that. What about demand in terms of gas for the last year? Is it dramatically way down? Well, it was very early on in the pandemic, nearly a year ago, last April and May, saw gasoline demand, uh, at least in the U.S., plummet nearly 60%. I would expect that much of this holds true across both countries. We have metrics, however, for the U.S. But now in the last four months or so, really since the holidays and the new year, as the temperatures have warmed up, restrictions have loosened, and now we're starting to see a return of demand. Uh, quite considerably. Okay, now we've also had some interruption in supply, haven't we, with that winter storm, the unexpected catastrophic winter storm in Texas. That caused some shutdowns of some refineries. Is it safe to say, Patrick, that those are all back up and running now? Well, after about four weeks, it's taken a long time, but indeed those refineries in Texas are by and large back online. So then uh, with that interruption, though, of that month, what happened to supply? Well, supply diminished. In fact, uh, oil inventories, gasoline inventories in the U.S. by kind of a global benchmark plummeted by nearly a billion gallons. For those keeping track, of course, that would be nearly four billion liters of gasoline that wasn't produced as a result of those outages. And keep in mind, demand has continued to go up as temperatures have warmed. Right. And so that's a problem. So how does the problem get solved then, Patrick? Well, the problem gets solved while prices have gone up, but refineries have gotten back online. Now, production is going up, and of course, refineries in the affected area couldn't do much, but refineries outside of the Texas area 
ramped up some production, uh, but really there's not a permanent fix here. We are still kind of struggling supply-wise. Demand continues to go up, and that's really why we're spending much more at the pump than we did uh, in the preceding few months. There's also a thing, Patrick, and you can help me understand this a little better, where refineries have to sort of retool at roughly this time every year to go from winter gas to summer gas. What does that mean? That's exactly it. Well, uh, the Canadian system follows the American system very close. Uh, A lot of uh, Canadian gasoline does come from the States. And in the States, the Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA, requires cleaner gasoline in the summer months to correspond with warmer temperatures, gasoline that burns cleaner and is not as volatile. And that's something that happens in Canada as well. And as you mentioned, typically in late winter, refineries go down for maintenance to prepare for that changeover. Mm -hmm. Um, And so now as we move forward, uh, we are beginning that or have begun the transition to that more stringent gasoline requirement, uh, which comes into play uh, starting May 1st is the deadline for uh, U.S. refiners to make that switch over. So we are knee-deep in that transition. Okay, now that's part of the supply uh, backup and part of the supply explanation in terms of these rising gas prices, Patrick. But how about the rest of the supply chain? And I'm talking about offshore supplies. For example, the Saudis are talking about keeping their production levels at current levels because they like the way the price is going up. Well, certainly not a surprise that OPEC is, is starting to like how oil prices have gone up in recent months. Uh, the Saudis last month, when uh, when they had their uh, monthly meeting in Vienna to discuss the pandemic and should they raise production, the Saudis had a very cautious note. Uh, they didn't want to increase production. They were worried about all these variants, and they were kind of spot on. We saw shutdowns happening in the last few weeks in Europe. COVID cases have gone up. Yep. But now at their meeting just two days ago, uh, they decided to raise output in the month of May by 350,000 barrels. So we're starting to see that very tight balance loosened up with OPEC now beginning to increase production in the months ahead. So will that also translate into the Canadian oil patch in Alberta? Do you think the demand increase over the summer may at least provide some some activity and some relief to the beleaguered Canadian oil patch? Well, it's certainly, help, uh, certainly helpful that prices have gone up, but in the past few weeks, the rig count in Canada has continued to crumble yeah. uh, impressively. Even as America's rig count goes up, Canada's has gone down. And, and, you know, make no mistake, some of that could be the attitude towards the fossil fuel sector. A lot of investment being yanked out from underneath them. Uh, and, of course, the Canadian administration with uh, Trudeau, um, you know, obviously a, a big turn uh, from somebody like President Trump, who is very friendly to somebody who's kind of uh, the opposite. And in the States, just picking up on that, now that Mr. Trump is gone and you have a new president who seems to be more environmentally aware and conscious, what is that going to do to the American production side? Well, it's eventually going to go the way of of Canada's. That is, uh, the cancellation of the Keystone will, in the years ahead, limit capacity Mm -hmm. uh, of America's pipelines. That would act to boost prices, not today, but in the years ahead. Uh, President Biden also issuing a moratorium on new drilling on federal land, which, once we get back to normal, will also be a limitation. So both of those will eventually play a role in pushing oil prices higher down the road. Patrick, just a curiosity question. What percentage of annual fuel is consumed by the aviation industry? 
for you. You know, you, you catch me there right now. Uh, jet fuel demand has plummeted. In fact, of all the refined products, diesel, gasoline, and jet fuel, aviation consumption has been even more hard hit than gasoline. We're still looking at aviation consumption down 25% to normal. A lot of airliners still grounded, not making any international flights. Yeah. So, again, there's an element of demand that basically is still unseen at this point. That's exactly it. Now, uh, we are starting to see more domestic trips happen across the U.S. and Canada. Uh, but still, this summer, um, you're, you're going to see travel restrictions country to country mm-hmm. uh, that are going to keep that demand from rebounding quickly. Patrick DeHaan is joining us this weekend. He's visiting family in Iowa. He is uh, the senior petroleum analyst for GasBuddy.com. And Patrick, we've been talking about gas prices. The headline that brought this to you, uh, you to our attention, gas prices are up sharply and could keep rising, analyst warns. Uh, the warning you've been talking about so far, including supply side issues uh, and we and demand, which is beginning to rise with the obvious exception of the aviation sector. That should come on a little more strongly in the second half of the year. But the other element that we haven't talked a lot at all, Patrick, is taxes. And here in Vancouver, we pay the most taxes per drop of gas, I suspect, than anywhere else in North America. You are spot on. It's been nothing but going up. It's very impressive now, uh, the tax differential between Vancouver and crossing uh, the southern border into the States, how much taxation the difference is. In fact, uh, many in Vancouver still make that trip across the U.S. to fill up simply because it's nearly half the price in some instances. Yeah, when the border is back open again, you'll see a lot more of that hopping over. And, and But unfortunately, right. it, the, the gate has been sealed shut for a year, so we're, we're forced to suck it up and pay local prices. And by the way, just to compare the two top markets in the country this weekend, the average price of a liter of gas in metropolitan Toronto, Patrick, is just under a buck and a quarter. The average price for a liter of gas in Vancouver is a buck and a half. Absolutely uh, wild, is it not, to, to see such a huge uh, variety in prices there. And the entire difference, um, right now at least, is the level of taxation. Now, yeah. sometimes if there's an, uh, an event on the West Coast that can drive up prices, mm-hmm. the wholesale level, then you would say, okay, well, there's something exceptional. But right now, there's nothing really uncommon. And it goes to show that certainly does uh, make a big difference. And, and even between Vancouver and the U.S., uh, taxes in Vancouver, nearly 50% of every liter of gasoline is taxes. You go south into the U.S., and it drops to 20 to 25%. It usually is higher on the West Coast, right. uh, but some U.S. states are even lower. And so that, and that's all a local thing, too, isn't it? Because Toronto is three times the size of Vancouver, and yet their price of a liter of gas is uh, 25 cents less. And you wonder, gosh, how's that one working out? Well, exactly, and and you have uh, you have a lot of local ordinances. Vancouver, a transit link, uh, sure. you know these things cost money, uh, and they are assessed on every liter, and and so that is certainly a big reason um, for the difference. And of course, carbon taxes can vary by province, and uh, of course, with that recently going up, that's yet another added cost. I just saw something on social media saying in Canada, I don't remember seeing such high gas prices per liter compared to the last time oil was at this level. And mm. a lot of the reason, of course, is because of the rise in taxes. Yeah, exactly. I wonder, as head of petroleum analysis for Gas Buddy, you're uh, able to, in some way, measure the effects 
of non-petroleum vehicle incursions into the marketplace. In other words, are, are, we, are we at a measurable point yet, Patrick, where we can start saying, well, because we have X number of electric or hybrid vehicles, demand levels are X percent lower. Are we at that point yet? We're not quite to the point where it's noticeable enough to note that difference. Now, anecdotally, we obviously see uh, manufacturers like Tesla uh, in the U.S. and selling vehicles in Canada, you know, selling potentially hundreds of thousands of vehicles. Uh, but it's not really made a dent in overall gasoline consumption, mm-hmm. not at least compared to COVID. Uh, before COVID, the U.S. in 2019 was nearing record levels for gasoline consumption in the summer. Um, you know, and as we move forward, it would not be a surprise that we continue to see gasoline demand go up because many uh, on both sides of the border are trading in smaller, more fuel-efficient vehicles and going to bigger, less fuel-efficient vehicles, offsetting those gains had by EVs. Interesting stuff. And, of course, because of the suppression of, of activity for well over a year, more so in Canada, I suspect, than in some states in America. But nonetheless, there's a lot of pent-up, okay, there's a ton of pent-up demand. <laughs> and people are going to want to just get out there and go somewhere. Are you anticipating monstrous demand over the summer of 21? Well, I think that's certainly a possibility, maybe not monstrous, but maybe close back to normal or potentially above normal. I mean, as you mentioned, it really depends on the pace that the economy rebounds. And you could see it in Canada, too. You know, keep in mind, Canadians and Americans are likely going to be locked, uh, you know, in their respective countries this year because myriad restrictions on global travel. So, um, you know, many uh, across Canada and the U.S. have been under lockdown in, in some way, shape or form for, you know, the better part of the last 12 months. And, and you know, if this summer they're feeling good, uh, we could see a lot of, of that pent-up demand uh, start to be realized. What uh, What's the average price uh, in the United States for a gallon this weekend across America? Oh, it might pain you to know, but it's at about $2.86 oh, cents a gallon. Of course, on. in Canada, uh, you know, let, let's not mention the equivalents, but Price is notably higher by over a dollar and a half a gallon. Oh my gosh! Okay. In Canada, I'm sitting down. What's the Canadian equivalent <laughs> per liter? Well, we are at about a dollar twenty-five per liter today, and okay. that continues to go up, of course, because of the recent increase in the carbon tax. Uh, okay, so it, it's you're already at Toronto prices in the states. So you, hopefully, you won't have to get up to Vancouver rates, and you'll be able to have a little money to spend when you go traveling this summer. So, Patrick, do most of the travel uh, expectations are, are they domestic rather than uh, we're going to jump on a plane? Although that might be possible as more and more of us get vaccinated, mm-hmm. the demand I suspect is going to be just jump in the car and buzz off, blow town, right? You, you, you know, I would have thought so, but we are really starting to see a rebound in the number of passengers screened getting on airplanes. Uh-huh. So that is a surprise here. And a lot of airlines now, uh, at least in the States, are adding flights left and right and blowing the doors open. In fact, uh, one of the U.S. airlines, American Airlines, just announcing just days ago that they are at 90% of 2019's level of bookings, which is very impressive. So conventional wisdom would have thought, yeah, sure, everyone's going to hit the road. They don't want to get on a plane, but people are starting to feel good. Vaccines are spreading coast to coast. That may open the door to get on a plane. It is, isn't it? That's the ticket, isn't it? The vaccine is the ticket to get those doors open and then get out of town. 
That's right. It's the golden ticket this year. Absolutely. Patrick DeHaan, enjoy your weekend, your Easter weekend visit with your family in Iowa. Thanks so much for giving up a little bit of it to be with us here in Vancouver. My pleasure. Andrew and I saw this uh, story, or this uh, article, on the Internet a couple of days ago and jumped all over it. It's entitled, Want to Avoid Raising Entitled Kids? Don't do these four things. It was written by a woman named Catherine Pearson. And so we dive into the article and realize that the writer is actually spending the whole article quoting another person. And when we decided, when we read the whole article, we decided, well, rather than deal with the writer of the article, let's go to the person she spent the whole thing quoting. And it's a pleasure to welcome that person to the program on Easter Sunday. She is Aliza Pressman. She is the co-founder of the Mount Sinai Parenting Center and also the host of of the Raising Good Humans podcast. Aliza, good morning, happy Easter, and welcome. Good morning, happy Easter, and thank you. It's great to have you with us. Uh, this uh, uh, this article that was written, uh, quoting you, left, right, and center, uh, by Catherine <laughs> Pearson. How long ago did you do the interview for this? Oh, you know, I, 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 probably a couple of weeks ago. Okay. I can't exactly i can't remember so it's still fairly fresh then but the whole the whole point that she's making is that uh it, it is possible uh to to not pay attention to details and in the process end up with some pretty entitled kids yeah you know we can inadvertently and in a very well-meaning way do things that add up to having an entitled kid mm-hmm. can we go through her list and then we can embellish where necessary but let's sure. let's does she, because the whole point is she says if you want to avoid raising entitled kids don't do these four things so aliza mistake number one not actively teaching our children how to cope with not getting their way or losing mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, you know, we we don't like seeing our kids uncomfortable. And so especially with younger children, but in general, parents tend to fix that feeling. So if they're a toddler who really wanted a blue cup and they throw a tantrum, we want to replace the we, we, we just want to make them feel better. So we'll give them the blue cup, let's say. Sure. Or losing a game. You know, we pretend to lose a Monopoly game because we don't want them to feel like they lost. All of those moments were taking away the opportunity to cope with not getting your way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, and uh, uh, this, of course, translates uh, as they grow a little older into the education system, too, where everybody mm-hmm. gets a star and nobody That's actually right. wins. We don't keep score. Well, you know, right. in life, people keep score, Lisa. Yeah. And if you didn't know that and you find out as an adult, it's not pleasant. So how then, uh, give us some uh, examples here. Let's talk about a, a small person who's uh, uh, in a situation. Give us an example of, uh, of, of how this, uh, this can be illustrated in terms of, uh, n- n- again, not getting their own way uh, or losing. Losing is easier to explain. You, you know, you, you mm-hmm. didn't win this time. Let's play again. You, you might win next time. I mean, it can go by. Losing can happen really fast, and, and you, don't, you yeah. don't have to lose your mind because you lost a round, do you? No. Um, So I would say an example that's just about wanting to learn how to exercise that muscle where you're not getting your way Mm -hmm. is finding those moments, which toddlers and children give us all the time, where they want to switch seats with you. They want you to do something. They are going shopping. The example in here is shopping for a birthday present for someone else. In advance, you let them know, you know, hey, we're going to go shopping for a birthday present for Billy. 
I know it can be hard for you when you go in the store not to get something for yourself. So let's make sure we remember to write down all the things that you thought were exciting and we'll keep them on your list for the next birthday or holiday. Oh, well, that, to- that, that's a thoughtful trade-off, okay? So the kid understands that mm-hmm. we're going we're to go get a present for my friend, and I'm not going to be able to bring home some a, a trophy myself, but I'm not going to be completely ignored because you're going to pay attention to stuff that I like. That's right, because when you completely disregard, let's, you know, that or a kid who wanted the blue sippy cup that he threw down because he got a red one and right. he really wants that blue one. If you don't, if you just say, like, you're just going to have to deal with it, you actually are not helping kids learn because when kids go into their angry, upset, stressed brain, they go, just like all of us, into fight, flight, or freeze, and they can't learn. They're just sitting there trying to get what they need. So if you can show them empathy and say, you really wanted that blue cup, or I know you're going to want that present. It's going to be tough, but you can do it. Then they feel seen, they feel understood. And even if they're upset, they they know that you weren't just ignoring their feelings. Yeah. Now that, 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 that little conversation you just, that imaginary conversation you just had, Aliza, suggests you're conversing with, some with, the, with someone with the ability to rationalize and respond. At what age does your research tell you a child is capable of that kind of conversation? You want to start having those conversations out of the gate. So even when there's a one-year-old who's crying, you're waiting for them to be able to hear you. Certainly they need to stop crying. Mm -hmm. But once they've stopped crying, you can say with your body language and with very simple words, that one sentence of compassion, they'll hear your tone of voice. They'll understand that you're on their side. Mm -hmm. And then you still give them the boundary. You, you know, you don't give them the new cup color or whatever. Sure. So it doesn't really matter that they understand the words. They just need to understand what's happening. Okay. Now, according to, to the article, uh, the mis- the second mistake that is frequently uh, made uh, that ends up sometimes in raising entitled kids is not giving enough emphasis to household responsibilities. Mm-hmm. Just give kids chores. It's not for money. It's not because you're getting a prize. It's because everybody in the household participates in taking care of the household. Right. And and, and so that makes the person, the, the small person, uh, admittedly, mm. not capable of, you know, shoveling the driveway. But uh, nonetheless, uh, there are tasks that everyone exactly. at, at age appropriate tasks that can all be done. And nobody gets to be uh, nobody gets to sit out around. Everybody has to pitch in and get something done. Right. That's right. And it actually makes you feel good because you become more competent. It doesn't feel good to not be able to do anything for yourself. And have We think so as an adult, it might feel great to just have somebody do everything for us. But that's, you know, long into being a developed person. Well, and, tr- and at sometimes, you know, you give a three-year-old a cleaning responsibility, for example, mm-hmm. there's a pretty good chance you're going to have to go back over that afterwards anyway. But nonetheless, mm-hmm. it's the opportunity to, hey, you see that mess? Here's a rag. Go, go clean it up. And off they go. That's right. That's right. So that one, do we really, uh, in 2021, tend to de-emphasize household chores and those domestic responsibilities still, Eliza? We do. We do. There are fewer, kids have fewer chores. Kids have such busy schedules that parents feel like, well, they have so much on their plates, I'm not going to add this to their plate. Right. 
and it's it's more important than those busy schedules. They're getting a lot out of it that we don't realize. And how about those busy schedules for just a moment? We're, it's not on the list, but I mean, this is something that, you know, it's, in football, if you pile on, you get a flag and a penalty. <laughs> in, in parenting, mm-hmm. if you overload and keep piling on and piling on activity after activity, uh, uh, there are no penalties imposed. Do you think sometimes right. sometimes there ought to be? There, well, I think there is there is a natural penalty, which is all the things you thought you were going to get out of it, you get burnout instead. Yeah. And eventually, uh, you know, you're going to music lessons and you go into dance class and then you go into baseball practice. Well, wait a second. I, mm-hmm. I, I don't like uh, playing piano anymore. Well, that's too bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, right. eventually uh, there's going to be a, there, there's a breaking point built into that almost, isn't there? There really is, you know, um, and, and yeah, it's a little off to the uh, off topic, but super important is to pick and help your kids certainly stick to a commitment, right. but not ten commitments. Right. Uh, yeah. Again, because uh, there's school uh, such as it is during the pandemic. You're in New York. I don't know how how it's been like. Our kids are our kids in 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 the Big Apple going to school, Aliza, or are they at home uh, zooming to school? You know, it really depends. I mean, some kids are some kids are zooming away, and, and many kids have had the opportunity to go back to school so it's or go a, back to a modified school. Okay, good. So there's a bit of everything going on there. Same mm-hmm. here, in, same mm-hmm. in Vancouver. So again, though, uh, if you've got that school uh, requirement or that component in your life, uh, plus there's family, and then there are the other things, the uh, perhaps the sports, the arts, the dance, the music, whatever. But is there a tendency to just try and pack too much to 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 create some kind of perfect specimen rather than a, a somewhat a reasonably adjusted young person? Yeah, I mean, I think one one of the things that that tends to happen is we we have so many opportunities. We don't want to we we want to provide opportunities for our kids, and we forget about the the all of that the stuff, the executive function skills, and the skills to be able to navigate stress and those kinds of things that are so important that you have to build time for. Right. And, um, but I also think um, we, we have to make a huge effort to raise the kids that we have and, and give them opportunities to enhance based on their interests. If it's based on who we think we're raising or what our interests are, then we already know from motivation research that kids who are motivated because of their parents aren't going to get as much out of the activity as kids who have some self-motivation. Right. Interesting stuff. And that, uh, and that's not to say that, you know, there'll be a concert pianist who's going to tell you, you know, when I first took my piano lessons, I hated it. My mom and dad made me play the piano. And of course, now, and now look at the career I've had. But you know, that's the exception rather the rule, I should think. It really is. And you can, you can um, motivate, you can help with a little outside motivation for practice, you know, just to get into habits, but that's still got to be a, about something the child is interested in. Sure. And then you're absolutely right. Separately, there's a, there are things that you have to do that you don't want to do. That is just part of, that is another skill that we need in life. Homework you have to do, even though you don't want to do it. Most people are like, yay, I have math homework. Mm, right. Yeah, right. So it is a skill to help kids learn that not everything is about their enjoyment. Um, some things you have to do anyway, and learning how to find some enjoyable things to do in between so that you're getting the breaks that you need to continue to keep going is really important. 
Sterling Fox with you on Easter Sunday morning, joined from New York City by Aliza Pressman, co-founder of the Mount Sinai Parenting Center, host of the Raising Good Humans podcast, which I must listen to. I haven't done so yet, Aliza, and it's been around for a while. Very successful stuff. It's the website that I wanted to draw to my listeners' attention before we move on to that list of things parents do that end up uh, raising entitled kids. The website is uh, it, it is parenting.mountsinai.org. And on the website, Aliza, uh, you talk about the science and you talk about the research and better parenting leading to better child health outcomes, not only physical health, but mental health. The better the parenting, the more balanced uh, human being is going to come out of the uh, of the effort. Yeah, I mean, it's it's certainly not a surprise to anybody, but. The, the one, the most powerful environmental, um, the most powerful environment or environmental influence on your child's outcome, health and mental health outcomes is your parenting, which mm-hmm. is not pressure. It's more wonderful because that you can control. You can't control anybody else or anything else. But you can control yourself. And parents are a child's first and most important relationship. You talk about positive parenting, promoting uh, brain development, emotional growth, and coping skills, all of which begins long before school. Yeah, it really begins right away. And it's wonderful because we know that having a sensitive, loving caregiver who has boundaries and expectations and, you know, all of the things that we're talking about can really help buffer the effects of the the stressful things that happen in life that we wouldn't wish upon any kids, like a pandemic. Mm -hmm. And and back to this list now of uh, of avoiding raising entitled kids. Don't do these four things. Uh, Number Mm -hmm. one was uh, not actively teaching them how to cope with not getting their way or losing. Number two was not giving them enough household responsibilities. Uh, Come on with the chores already. Number three, this is for you, Aliza, (laughs) being fuzzy on what your own boundaries are and you're widely quoted in this article uh, and it begins with boundaries are really important for raising non-entitled kids if you notice that you're inconsistent that's a red flag that's your quote yeah i mean it's you know it's really hard for kids to hear you say it's you know it matters to me that you do x y or z Mm -hmm. if when they don't do it, you don't really care. Or if you change the rules on them constantly. Now, it's, of course, we're all human and you're going to, but um, you just want to, most of the time, I always say like 75% of the time, aim for 75% of the time and the rest you can chalk up to mistakes and throw out or, you know, just exhaustion. But you do want to be consistent with what you expect of your kids and what you expect of yourself. And um, that way these messages are internalized and and you talk about um uh, again there's there's a discipline component because you use the word strictness in some of your descriptions of parental attitudes and that's not a negative uh, because it's not over the top and you also temper it with compassion that's right if you give rules to your children that make sense you give them a reason for the rules and you are compassionate that these are hard rules to follow, that you're not just expecting that they're going to, you know, feel great about it. Right. They will um, do better. And it's actually more important for them than if you had no rules and you were just all sensitivity. There's an expression um, in a book um, that 
parents quote all the time, you get what you get and you don't get upset. And it really bothers me because I'm like, no, 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 you get what you get and you might get upset. And that is okay. That's sure. part of life. Mm-hmm. But I'll be here for you. I'll hug you, but I'm still going to say you're not going to have a cookie after dinner or yeah. whatever it is. You can't always get what you want. Uh, it's an old song, Aliza, but you know, That's it's right. it's bloody true, isn't it? And you might yeah. as well learn it early on. <laughs> It'll help with a long That's life right. ahead of you. Mistake number four with just a minute or so left. Failure to model the behavior you'd like to see. Well, we, uh, you know, we forget that our kids are watching. So if you're telling your children that say please and thank you and be polite and ask somebody how they're doing or open the door for someone or be kind to the person who's helping you at the store and then you're nasty or curt or forget those things, your message doesn't mean anything. Right. You really want to, everything with parenting starts with less focus on teaching our kids to be a certain way and actually just being the best version of ourselves so that our kids can see that. And that's what they're, that's what's modeled for their childhood. Yeah. Uh, great website again. Congratulations to you and all the people at Center. It, it's just a wonderful resource and, and tons of really smart things to read through uh, and lots of uh, emphasis on the science. In terms of this article that uh, that we saw and we've gone through in terms of the uh, mistakes, most frequently the contribute to entitled kids, uh, uh, in terms of uh, a, a sort of a takeaway from this conversation, Eliza, uh, for people. And again, we're dealing with extraordinary times. We've been locked up yeah. in, in many parts of North America and the world for over a year. These aren't even semi-normal times, and yet we're trying desperately with our children to make life as normal as we can. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know what? A takeaway from that is specifically for that reason, we need the, the routines and the same boundaries and the same expectations and the same kind of boring day and schedule instead of saying what we did at the beginning of all of this, like, oh, forget it. I don't care. Just let's get through this day. We have to really try a little bit more and also give ourselves some grace and compassion. We're going to screw up. We're going to be exhausted. And so are our kids. And so we have the next day to try again. Excellent. Alisa, thanks very much for this. Again, I'm just commending your website to my listeners, parenting.mountsinai.org. It's a splendid website. Alisa Pressman, a pleasure to have you on the program. We must do this again sometime. Very much Thank enjoyed you. it. would love it. On Thursday, the Canadian Federation of Independent Business said it wants all governments, federal and provincial, to look at alternatives to lockdowns and increased financial support for small businesses, as, of course, several provinces have moved to tough for restrictions. Ontario has gone into a 28-day lockdown. And here in British Columbia, of course, we're right in the middle of that three-week circuit breaker uh, restriction process. The uh, the first two sh- shutdowns, according to the CFIB, the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, were devastating with one in six businesses considering permanent closure. The group says a survey found two-thirds of small businesses would consider using COVID-19 rapid tests to remain open. They say Canadian small businesses on average have taken on $170,000 in direct COVID-19 related debt. It says three quarters of respondents say it will take more than a year to get caught up. Here with more from the Canadian Federation of Independent Business is their vice president of strategic planning, Laura Jones. Laura, happy Easter. Good morning and welcome back. 
Happy Easter, and it's nice to be back. Well, it's good to have you with nice us, Lori. Nice to hear, too, that we're turning the corner on our weather. Well, that's... <laughs> happy to see that. that is about, now, now, if only we could turn the corner on COVID-19. No kidding, huh? And the Canucks a bit of a setback for those of us in British Columbia. Oh, my gosh, our guys are down for the count this weekend. That's not good, is it, Laura? <sighs> No, no, that's uh, not good for our mental health. Not at all. So let's talk a little bit about the most recent round of communications from Dan Kelly, the president, and the rest of your team. Uh, A lot of it having to do with the lockdown in Ontario. Uh, Your Ontario boss, Ryan Malto, saying small businesses are tired of being a scapegoat for the Ontario government's lack of planning or foresight. A lot of issue being taken with specific closures. For example, Laura, this is an example I heard on, on the radio here on NW on Friday. In British Columbia today, on Easter Sunday, this is interesting. In in British Columbia today, it is perfectly legal and possible to go with a movie crew and shoot a church service in a church. But it is illegal to attend a church service in a church. So these are the kind of restrictions and limitations and what ifs and uh, hair splitting subcategories that are driving a lot of small businesses right round the bend, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that the more you can tie what you're doing to the science, or at least what we know, the best that we know about what's happening with the science, and create a good, you know, get people's head nodding on why those restrictions make sense, then you have a better chance of having them followed. But when the restrictions start to make no sense, and you're over a year into this, and people are tired, Mm -hmm. um, and you're asking a lot of people, just regular citizens, let alone business owners whose livelihoods depend on this, um, but just to, to talk about on Ontario for a moment. I mean, Ontario's just done a terrible job of this. So it's been like 300 days since you could get your hair cut in some parts of that province. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's no evidence that hairdressers are the ones, you know, when they're masked and you're masked and you're, you're, you know, they're behind you and, you know, they're sanitizing between appointments. I mean, there's just no evidence that that's what's driving, you know, big numbers of cases. And to give British Columbia authorities a compliment on this, you know, they've they've kept that open. We have been able to get our hair cut. But imagine if it had been three. 300 days, our director in Ontario is going crazy. He said, you know, just, just, just the effect on his mental health of not being able to get a haircut has been pretty severe. Um, but for those hairdressers, it's just terrible. And they've got their customers phoning them saying, you know, can you give me a haircut in my backyard? Yes, and yeah. It puts people in these terrible, terrible um, dilemmas because... What the government is doing is just completely out of bounds in terms of what's what's reasonable, and I don't say that I don't say that lightly um, at all, Sterling. I, you know that's that's a big thing to say, but it it is really Ontario's been one of the the worst in North America for its lockdowns, and it's created a lot of misery. Well, and and of course, uh, we you and I have established this pattern of Sunday morning visits on a semi-regular basis. And one of the reasons for that, and you've come around to appreciate it too, is that on Friday nights, you gather all the information from all your CFIB members, hundreds of thousands of small business people across Canada. You are relentlessly surveying your membership, Laura. And every weekend, you synthesize the latest batch of information and survey findings. What have you got for us this Sunday morning in terms 
terms of uh, updating of files or attitudes or, uh, again, perhaps even something as, as simple and devastatingly simple as uh, how many are of these businesses are bracing themselves to not make it through this most recent set of lockdowns? Yeah, so I'm. I hate to break this to you, but we're. I'm a little off cycle right now because we're, we've we've put a little pace. We put a little a little circuit breaker in our survey just to, so that we don't exhaust our members. So okay. we're working on our next survey now. All right. But what I can. The good news is that I always have survey results that we haven't released publicly because we ask so many, and I'm I'm happy to share those with you. Good. So one of them is that you know eighty um, percent are agreeing, and this is across Canada, including British. Columbia, 80% are agreeing um, that governments need to be more creative about uh, allowing businesses to make more sales while keeping people safe. And that brings us back to rapid testing. Yeah. I mean, honestly, like we really need to, and there have been some provinces, Nova Scotia has been a leader in this. They've had these pop-up um, uh, tents for rapid tests where yeah. anyone can just come in and get a rapid test. And, you know, if you're doing anything that might be a little bit on the riskier side where you have to take your mask off to eat or drink, say, um, you know, you can get one of these rapid tests and they're not perfect. But what they're doing is they're catching some of the cases that are asymptomatic yes. um, in the public before, you know, before they start spreading them. I mean, imagine if we'd had a few pop-up tents up in Whistler uh, where people could uh, get tested. So I think we need to be more creative now and we need to accept that in some way, shape or form, we're living with this longer than we than we wanted to. And to only rely on these these, you know, really high quality lab tests that take at least 24 hours to turn around mm -hmm. is just not going to cut it for us. Yeah. And, and uh, BC has a particularly sort of poo poo attitude towards this. Dr. Henry has not uh, been very positive or very uh, uh, upbeat about this. And as you say, they're not perfect, and she's very quick to point that out. And that, to her at least, as I interpret her remarks, is the flaw. They're not to be trusted because they're not accurate enough. But in your form of reference, you're saying at least it's a device, it's a tool in the box that may help uh, c capture uh, some, uh, some disease uh, or infection uh, cases, but also provide another layer of screening. Provide another lay of screening, another tool in the toolkit, and I think people can be educated um, about their imperfections. And you know, where I, I, I'm, you know, I, I admire a lot of what what Dr. Henry has done, and I think she's done a fantastic job of keeping British. I mean, if you, I, <laughs> businesses in Ontario look at at what's going on in British Columbia with with you know with with I wish I wish I was there yeah. eyes. I mean, seriously, you know. So I hear it, that too. You know, and she's got she's got probably the toughest job in the province. So, but I just think we need to be, um, we kind of need to ch start challenging this now because that was one thing when we were three months in, six months in, but we're a year in and now we're, you know, in this third wave. And unlike in the U.S. where there seems to be a real kind of end in sight, um, the president has said everyone who wants a vaccine is going to have one by the end of May. Yeah. And things are going to be back to normal by July, you know, more back to normal. You're going to be able to do more things by July 4th. Meanwhile, Canadians are still wondering, what can I plan for my summer vacation and what can't I plan? Sure. And I just think that if we could catch some of these cases earlier, um, and it may be something we need to rely on going forward anyway with variants. So let's start 
piloting. Let's start experimenting. You know, and Nova Scotia again has done this with with good effects. So I'm not sure what the why we're still so hesitant about this, especially and a small businesses. That, a, something, especially a small businesses, you know, Laura. They're going to pick up the tab for this. The government is on the is not on the hook for any of this at all. If the businesses is going to voluntarily uh, do the rapid testing route, then they're going to have to absorb all of that cost too, and they're quite willing to, aren't they? Yeah, some of them have said they're willing to pay, you know, the, the um, rather, you know, the, the full cost of it. Others are saying, well, I don't know if I would pay the full cost, but I'll pay some. Consumers may be willing to yeah. do some of this. Governments may be able to pick up some of this. But the point is, if you pilot it and you start experimenting with those things, you can see whether how useful this is. And if Nova Scotia is any example, it looks like it was useful. And it's useful in terms of another very... The thing about it is I think it has the heads nodding in that it's practical. I can get my result in 15 minutes, sure. and then, you know, I know that I still have to be careful, um, but, uh, you know, because they're not perfect and they do have some false negatives, but that that lets me maybe, you know, feel, feel better about going to a restaurant with, um, you know, with my spouse or whatever it is. And it catches some of the positives mm-hmm. and some of the people who are asymptomatic and maybe spreading it, which I think is also very important. I, I, I agree that it needs to come with a full, you know, education with the imperfections. Right. But, you know, give the public some credit for being able to absorb that. And, and, and if not that, then what other things can we do to be create, creative about getting people um, out and being able to do things, um, uh, being able to shop more? Because... You know, I tell you, I'm going to I'm going to rant for a minute here, Sterling. Go ahead. I was looking at the editorial in the Globe, an economic boom despite the pandemic is the headline, and I have to sell it, tell you, I think that that's absolute nonsense. There's no economic boom right now. If you take out the government support from the economy, where is the economy then? Mm-hmm. If you're telling me there's a boom without all the government support then I'll, I'll go there with you. Yeah. Um, but and we can talk. But, you know, let's not pretend that we're in some kind of economic boom right now. We're in an artificial economic boom right now. And 70% of our members are saying that without the government subsidies right now, they'd be hooped. They'd be in serious trouble for sure. 2021. That is not an economic boom because <laughs> that's not sustainable. Laura Jones is back with us today. Laura is the Vice President Strategic Planning with the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Statistics Canada, by the way, Laura, uh, did identify over 58,000 active businesses that went away in 2020. Just further to your rant about it doesn't sound like a boom to me. And yet uh, we see these rising job numbers coming out at the end of recent months. So it is positive to the extent that more of us are finding our way back into the workplace. But that doesn't necessarily mean that uh, all small businesses are out of uh, a, a, a tricky situation. That's right. And you have to be careful when you look at those rising job numbers, too, because, um, again, first of all, there's a big wage subsidy still in place. Yes. So you take that away, and what would our unemployment rate look like? It would probably be <laughs> very different from what we're seeing right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and second of all, you have to look at what you're comparing to. You know, so it's been a very bad year. So when you look at month to month, you know, when you have a um, uh, jobs increasing, that's a, absolutely a good thing. Sure. But um, we're still not, you know, kind of back to where we were. But the bigger point for me is that we're heavily subsidizing all of this right now. 
now. And that's not sustainable, both at the provincial and federal level. You see eye-popping levels of, de- of, of you know, deficits you adding to our, to our debt. And, you know, I'm not arguing with that because we needed it to. And we, we, as an organization, have been calling on support for small business. Yep. And we needed it to get through the pandemic. Um, but it's not but, – but the point is, you know, how – how sustainable is that? You know, you can't keep leaning on that as your only tool. And that's where I think the creativity with which, to, you know, we need to start thinking about how to get more um, people back out safely, mm-hmm. um, shopping and traveling and doing the things they want to do, um, that, that that's going to be very important the longer this goes on. Well, I think because so. Because the, the kind of the lockdowns are a really blunt tool. And, you know, we're over a year into this. I, I think we just, we need to start thinking about how we're going to manage longer term. And from the point of view of a small business operator, suppose you're a restaurant in Vancouver and without any prior knowledge or whatsoever, you get word of this the three-week circuit breaker you've just ordered ordered food and supplies and invested money you don't have, in, in some cases, in many cases, borrowed money to buy that food to be ready for the next couple of weeks that now we'll see no customers indoors. Does the government have a duty of restitution in these cases, do you think? Well, I mean, I suppose that's what some of the support programs are are about, is they're trying to make you, um, it's, it's, it's not usually whole, but at least come, you know, come, come closer to, you know, compensating you for some of this. But you're absolutely right. But it can never compensate for the stress of, oh, you know, we're open, we've bought the supplies. And now, oh, my gosh, you know, all of this milk is going to spoil all of these, you know, all of this meat I can't use anymore. You know, that that's really, really difficult. And to go through that once is one thing, but when you're going through it multiple times, um, it's very stressful. And for the, for the, you know, for the smaller gyms that do things like Pilates and that kind of thing, you know, what are we allowed to do? What aren't we allowed to do? I mean, our phone lines just get jammed with calls anytime there are these lockdown uh, measures, often because they can't get the information they need from government. So they're coming to us to clarify sometimes these murky words or, you know, what, you know, how do we, how do we navigate all of this? And, you know, I, I, I was listening on the, on the break, they were, uh, there were some uh, clips from, from people saying, well, how could you not know? How could, you know, as a business owner, how sure. could you not know this was coming? And, you know, I just want to say that business owners are up to their eyeballs and alligators right now, just keeping their businesses going. Yeah. And so, you know, they're not necessarily glued to the television set, watching every blip and burp on what's happening with respect to, you know, the latest numbers. And it can be a few days, you know, it looked like things were, you know, things were moving in the right direction. Sure. And then all of a sudden they weren't. And so I, I you know, I know there's a lot of sort of... Um, who do we blame for all of this? Um, but business owners are, are doing the best they can. They Absolutely. really are. Yeah, Laura, we always appreciate your taking some time to join us and uh, to identify and articulate the situation that so many small business operators in this country are going through and have been for such an incredibly long period of time. We're grateful for this, especially on Easter Sunday, when I'm sure you have other things to do. Uh, Thanks very much for joining us again. Oh, thank you. Pleasure to welcome Donna Spencer back to the program as we head into our Arts Corner here for an Easter Sunday morning. Donna, one of a group of uh, delegates from the arts community who had the opportunity to meet with the minister responsible, Minister Marks, and Dr. Bonnie Henry a few days ago to talk about their predicament and what they can expect from the government vis-a-vis going forward. Donna Spencer, good morning. Welcome back. 
Good morning, Sterling. Glad to be back. It's good to have you with us. Uh, when was the meeting, Donna? It was on Tuesday, uh, Tuesday afternoon. Okay. And did Dr. Henry make the meeting as well? Uh, yes, she absolutely did. Uh, it was primarily her meeting. Obviously, Minister Mark was there to introduce and, and to make some comments about her support on the arts. But it was primarily Dr. Henry's meeting. Uh, we had forwarded some questions to her, which she responded to and uh, uh, added more to the chat chat so that she's got lots of questions from us. Uh, and she uh, responded very well and said she would get back to us with uh, input on those questions and uh, that she really was a supporter of the arts uh, and had to make some very tough decisions. So it was overwhelmingly a positive discussion, mm-hmm. I think. Um, you, the delegation from the arts community was uh, about three dozen people of which you were a member, correct? That's right. And That's that, right. that there- represented the entire spectrum of arts activities in British Columbia and all corners of the province too, right? Well, it was primarily, uh, actually, I should say, it was primarily the performing arts that were, were speaking okay. and um, not necessarily the, um, the craft side of our arts or the uh, visual arts sector, because the visual arts sector, actually, galleries have been open. Yes. Uh, so it's really, it's really the th- it was the theater people um, and those who operate venues throughout the province. And yes, the whole province was re- representative. So, uh, again, obviously, you're one of many theater groups in British Columbia who have not had the opportunity to perform much in the last now year plus. You had moments when you could have limited numbers of people in the theater. That, of course, is gone now. Did Dr. Henry give you any indication of, uh, of what to expect in terms of returning to even limited audiences in your in your venues? Well, I think uh, certainly she talked about uh, um, outside gatherings or performances over the summer. She talked about small, certainly starting small scale. She indicated that depending on how the vaccines un, uh, get out there and uh, the variants, that gatherings for arts performances, specifically arts performances, yeah. would uh, be happening uh, or could could be seen to be happening in uh, May um, and perhaps over the summer with some larger audiences with people seated in seats and, and uh, following all the protocols. She uh, indicated that probably towards the fall we would be looking at larger numbers, but that she couldn't foresee any kind of international performances, of, right. I- i.e. people coming in from outside happening until into 2022. Oh, really? Oh, interesting. Okay. Uh, because uh, the uh, I'm thinking Theatre Under the Stars, for example. There's a good example of a Vancouver institution, Donna, that happens every summer in Stanley Park, literally under the stars, outdoors. No reason that can't go forward this summer. How, what about Bard on the Beach, which is kind of outdoors in that it's in a tent. It's certainly well ventilated. Uh, did she, Did that come up at all? I think the challenges that uh, Theatre Under the Stars and Bard have um, are, while there may be allowed gatherings, they would be limited in numbers. So uh, at, at, certainly at Theatre Under the Stars, which I've enjoyed, and I, as you say, as an institution in Vancouver oh, yeah. and Bard, um, those audiences are uh, in, the capa- in the numbers of around 500, 600, and they need that kind of volume to be able to support the work that they're doing. That box office is so important to mm-hmm. them. So. I can't actually see that. I mean, I'm not <laughs> not the decider here, sure. but I can't actually see that those those kind of things would be allowed to go forward this summer. I just uh, perhaps part on the beach at fifty, but I don't really think that that's even financially possible. 
So now for you, uh, the rest of the arts community, the performing arts community, you are, of course, dealing with indoor venues. And up until the most recent closure, regardless of the capacity of that venue, Donna, you were restricted to 50 persons, uh, socially distanced and all the rest of that. When is it going to be possible, do you think, or did you get any indication when that might happen? 50 people in a hall, supposedly, that, that may hold 300. So you get a lot of spacing in that. Yeah, that was indicated that that may actually be possible in the summer, uh, that that kind of limited attendance may be possible in the summer. Again, it comes back to who can uh, afford to do, I mean, because box office is such a big piece of everyone's uh, uh, work in the performing arts. Sure. It's not that we're subsidized to the point that we don't have to uh, make money from box office. So I think there'll be very limited uh, indoor performances going forward this summer. But again, it would be with a 50. And I'm not quite sure where the magic number 50 comes from, but I think it's, it seems that um, the public health feel that they can manage that number if some outbreak happens in terms of contact tracing. So I don't know. There, that, that's one thing that I'm intrigued by is what determines the 50 number or yeah. uh, perhaps even moving to 250, because you're right, a lot of the venues are much uh, bigger and can accommodate more people on a person square footage and ventilation perspective, if you will. Yeah. Donna, final question to you. What was the most commonly returned question? What was the the, the thing that you all unanimously wanted to know from Dr. Henry? Uh, Well, the big one, of course, is when we could be open again. Uh, But also, what kind of can... I mean, we were asking, can we work with public health to actually determine what uh, what are safe restrictions for our businesses? Mm-hmm. That came up a lot um, because, of course, restaurants and bars were allowed to be open with a capacity based on their square footage. So that was one question that came up a lot. Uh, Dr. Henry, Henry came back to it over and over again that she really does believe the arts are important in the communities and that when we were closed down last fall, it wasn't so much about the health risk, it was more about the health risk was in our premises, but more to do with trying to get people to stay home yeah. so that they could take care of themselves. Interesting stuff. Donna, a productive meeting. You you did send me a note saying uh, that you could characterize it easily as productive, and I'm pleased that it was. Uh, and uh, we'll look forward to more conversations and hopefully one that includes a performance date at Fire Hall soon. A- absolutely. Thank you, Sterling. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.